I'm not going to preach this morning. All I'm doing is sharing some of the things in my life where the Lord has led me. Lamentations 3, 22 to 25, 24. Though the, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. He's the only hope we've got in our lives. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you a question. You don't need to answer me, just you might laugh. How many of you over the years, when you were sweethearts, wrote letters to one another. I had three years of it because I lived up in Papua New Guinea and Marjorie was doing her training in Bendigo in Victoria. And three years we corresponded. And every time I got a letter from her, it was very precious to me. I read it. I folded it up and put it in my pocket. Half an hour later, I pulled it out and I read it again. <laughs> and for days, I read it until the next one arrived. I loved her. And her love was expressed in her letters to me. They were precious. I'm going to ask you a question now. Would you have died for your sweetheart back then? Would you die for your sweetheart now? Many of you wouldn't. Many of us wouldn't. I know that. But the greatest love that ever was manifested anywhere on earth and in heaven is the love of God for you and me. He loved you and me enough to die for you and me. And it's only because of his death that you and I are sitting here today. And what did he do? God gave us his love letter. This is his love letter. Do you treat this love letter the same as you would treat the love letter from your sweetheart? Or do you give it a cursory glance every now and again and, oh yes, I'll read that little bit today? Or do you immerse yourself in it? Do you like to find out what he thinks of you and what he expects of you? Because it's all there. Every possible thing that could happen in your life is in here. It's as modern as tomorrow's newspaper. Perhaps even more modern. I'm going to read you a verse of scripture. Actually, a chapter. 2 Timothy 3. Now, the other day at home, I was sitting at our kitchen table with two of the young men from Teen Challenge. Every Wednesday, we have two men from Teen Challenge come out to our place and they do work around the place. We give the morning tea at about 10 o'clock and then we give them lunch at about perhaps 12, 1 o'clock. One of the lads was sitting there He'd only come into Teen Challenge on the Monday and this was the Wednesday. 
So he'd only been there two nights. He'd never ever had anything to do with the Bible, never had anything to do with Christianity, but somehow he knew that coming into Teen Challenge would help him. Every one of young people who have a life-controlling problem, as we call it in Teen Challenge, has a spiritual problem, a deep-seated spiritual problem. He didn't know that. Anyway, we were talking around and we were talking about the problems in the world today. What's going on out there? There's nothing very nice or pretty, is there? It's terrible. Satan seems to be gaining more and more and more control. So I got my Bible out, and this is what I do with them. I'll never talk to them about what came out of a book or what somebody said or somebody wrote. I always go to the Bible. So I went and got my Bible and I read this to him. But know, Paul writing to Timothy. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty. And then the last one, which Paul equates with all of those, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Think about it. Do you love pleasure before you love God? Do you spend hours and hours of time surfing the net at night during the day when you should be studying this? I'm going to even say this one and I know some people won't be happy. Do you play with Pokemon Go? If you do, I'm warning you, you're on a downward path. You are on a downward path. When I know what the scripture says about all of these things, there's, there's a host of things that we get involved in that we shouldn't. How much time do you spend sitting in front of the square box watching a film that's full of violence or full of sex? That's what Paul's talking about here. They're not things that are going to draw you closer to the Lord, get you to know him better, get you to know what he wants in your life. Think about it. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, <clears throat> and from such people, turn away. Further down in the chapter. But you have... Carefully, this is Paul again talking to Timothy. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, not might, will suffer persecution. I'll say that again. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus 
will suffer persecution. Things won't always be sweet and rosy. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you don't know your Bible, you are not equipped to do God's work. If you don't know your Bible, you are not equipped to do God's work. Paul says it here. Okay. When I was a boy, I can remember back as when I was seven, my mother used to sit on a chair, sit me on the floor between her feet. She had a Bible in her hand. I had a Bible in my hand. And for hours on end, when she had the time, she would sit there with me, teaching me scripture. I learnt dozens and dozens of chapters off by heart from the Bible, many, many psalms, verses of scripture coming out of my ears. I still remember them. You know, that has been one of my mainstays in life. The fact that every time I had a problem, something went wrong, I could go straight to scripture and read it, and know that this was God's love letter to me. Okay, now, it taught me to learn what God wanted me to do. Okay, I'm going to tell you some things that happened in my life that were tough. At the age of 11, we found out, or we, sorry, we didn't. It was 16, 17 when we found out. At the age of 11, my son, in 1982, got into marijuana. Me, my son, in marijuana? No way. Oh, yes. It is no respecter of persons. <laughs> Satan gets at you one way or another from within your family, within your church, if you can't get at you from outside. He will find a way if you're not grounded in scripture to be able to handle it. He was 15 before we realised that there was something seriously wrong with him. We, we found in the boot of the car lengths of garden hose about that long. We found plastic bottles cut in a certain way in the boot of the car. A burnt spoon, a spoon that had been held over a flame. It was burnt. We didn't have any idea. There were signs sticking out like pikestaffs, but we didn't have any idea what they meant. We were ignorant. Nobody had told us. We knew nothing. It took us a while to put everything together. He was 18 when we really finally found out what was going on with him. 
at the age of 17, without any qualifications or training, he worked for one of the machinery manufacturing places here in Toowoomba as their chief welder. No training. He had an incredible ability. He was bringing home back in 1988 $700 cash in his hand every week. And he never had a cent to bless himself with. And it was then that we started to realise what was going on. That was 30 years ago. At the age of 18, we knew enough. And I'd kept it from my mother. My mother was in the Yukana retirement village. Been there for some time. And she knew there was something amiss. But again, she didn't know either. At the age of 18, when we really found out, Marjorie and I sat down. And we said, Lord... This boy is completely off the rails. Satan has his claws into him. We can't do a thing about it. The more you try to help a person who's out there in that scene, the more you push them away. Until they want help, you can't do a thing for them. Don't ever try. You won't. You can't. You've got to get on your knees. That's the strongest thing. My mother, when I told her, we were ashamed. I was ashamed to tell my mother that my son, her grandson, was one of Toowoomba's leading drug dealers. And he was. He used to be sent to Sydney every few weeks. He was dealing with the Yakuza, with the triads, with the mafia in Sydney. He was issued with a revolver and a flick knife by them. He would go to Sydney and bring home up anything up to half a million dollars worth of drug. Sometimes he stashed it in my garden and I didn't know. And he then was in the distribution scene. And the terrible thing about it is senior police in Toowoomba aided and abetted him in what he was doing. You may not believe that, that is true. He used to be issued every week, uh, sorry, once a month, at the beginning of the month, from the police, a list which contained the raids, they were, a list of the raids they were going to make on premises during the coming month. They would always leave one place off so that when the raid was made there, they found something, it went into the press and it looked as if they were doing their job. Talk about corruption in overseas countries. Don't kid yourselves, it's here in a big way. Now, still. Okay. So Marjorie and I said, Lord, when he was a baby, we took him to church. And before the congregation and before you, we dedicated him to you. We did the same in our kitchen as soon as we realised. We didn't have him. We didn't even know where he was at the time. We dedicated him back to the Lord and said, we take our hands off. We give him to you. <clears throat> I went straight and told my mother. You know what she did? 
the same lady that had me sit between her feet while she taught me scripture after scripture after scripture. She gathered together over in the Yukana home every Wednesday at 11 o'clock a group of ladies. They spent an hour praying for him. Not just for a week, not just for a, a month, for six years she had that meeting every Wednesday at 11 o'clock without fail until the Lord brought him home one day. You know, when he came back out of rehab, he said to me, Dad, because when he was 11, before he actually got involved in the drug, he committed his life to the Lord. He would stand up in a church service and testify what the Lord had done for him. He said to me, all the years I was out there in the drugs, from the age of 11 to the age of 24 when he came home, he said, I knew I was grieving the Lord. I knew I was grieving the Lord. What a burden to carry. And then, excuse me, um, <laughs> he said, Dad, when a little old lady is praying for you, you haven't got much hope. <laughs> when a little old lady is praying for you, you haven't got much hope. He knew all that time that she was praying for him. She never gave up. You know, I've come across a lot of people who say, well, look, I took that to the Lord and he didn't answer me. How, how, how did you persevere in prayer? A week? A day? Once? No, 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 no. God answers prayer in his time, in his way, not in your time, not in my time, and not in my way. You and I have no control over that. He has total control. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And then, one day, it will happen. Marjorie and I worked for, well, I'll, I'll quote you another verse of Scripture, Romans 8.28. You all know this. All things, not some things, not a bit here and a bit there, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If you're called according to the purpose of God, and you believe that you are doing what God wants you to do, doesn't matter what it is, if it happens to you or somebody you know or any event has been allowed to happen by him, sometimes caused to happen by him. Why? To teach us, to bring us closer to him. And if you've got an absolute, absolute anchor in the Bible, You've got a, an anchor that nobody and nothing can shake or shift. It's absolutely, perfectly safe and secure. We came across a little statement the other day. Talking about your faith. If your faith is weak, it is because your knowledge of God and his word is weak. 
If your faith is weak, it is because your knowledge of God and his word is weak. The only way to increase your faith and trust in God is to increase your knowledge of God. And you do that by spending time in his word. It's all there, clear. As the psalmist says, as David says in the Psalms, be still and know that I am God. You know, all the hubbub, all the noise, all the carry on, all the whatever. I don't believe God's in that. It's when you get quietly with him and let him speak to you through his word. What happened to Elijah when he was running from Jezebel? He'd got rid of all the um, priests of Baal. And uh, he ran away. The Lord led him down into the desert, into a place alone. And Elijah's in this cave. First of all, the Lord came to him, but there was a massive wind. Now think of this. The Bible says the wind was so heavy that it broke the rocks. Have you ever seen a boulder out in the bush? Try to break it? Wind breaks it? That's what the Bible says. The wind broke the rocks in pieces. There was an earthquake. And then there was a fire. But you know what? God wasn't in any of those. And then Elijah heard this still, small voice. And you know, mostly that's the way God speaks to us. Still, small voice coming out of the study and the reading of his word. That's what was instilled in my mind as we went through all these terrible, terrible dark alleys we were going down. We didn't know what was at the end of it. But I had a satisfaction, I had a knowledge based on my reading of the word of God that none of it, none of it would be detrimental in the long run. God was training or giving Marjorie and I training, giving us background, giving us something that we needed to do what he had for us to do in the future. We didn't know that. I didn't know that sitting at my mother's knee was preparing me for what God had for me in the future. But he was. You know... As we went through the problems, God laid on our heart, laid on my heart very, very heavily, go and do something about it. Go and do something about it. Back in 1960, my uncle, he was one of the founders of the Assemblies of God work in Queensland, Charles Entick my mother's older brother, went over to the Canada and the States. He'd written a book called Every Believer Evangelism. 
an incredible textbook on one-on-one -on -one personal evangelism, covering every aspect you could possibly think of, including dealing with false teaching and the um, cults and everything else. He met up with David Wilkerson, who'd started Teen Challenge in New York in 1958. Some of you may know the book, The Cross and the Switchblade, the author of that book. My uncle worked with him for quite some time in New York, realising that that program was what could be a benefit here in Australia. So my uncle worked with him for uh, quite some months, brought the program back to Australia, but excuse me, sadly when he started it, he opened it in the cross in Sydney. Well, the King's Cross in Sydney is not the place to run that kind of program, he found out, he realised. So he knew he needed a property somewhere, away from the city. So he um, signed up to sell the encyclopedia called World Book. Some of you may know of it. He topped the sales in Australia year after year. And all of the money he made from that, he put to buying a property at Lower Mangrove on which to establish a Teen Challenge rehab program. When my son came home looking, wanting help when he was 24, I had to send him down to the Teen Challenge program in New South Wales because there was not one here. And if it wasn't Christian, soundly based on the Bible, I wasn't interested. So we took my son down there. And what happened? We were shown the dormitory that he'd be staying in and a bronze plaque over the door. Antiknap Lodge. My uncle's name. My uncle, from 1960, the Lord had been working towards the ability for my son to get his rehabilitation. The Lord is wonderful. The Lord does incredible things. Don't ever doubt him. But you will doubt him unless you know what's in here. Okay. Then in 90, about 1990, 1991, I decided, Marjorie and I decided that we were going to work towards getting a Teen Challenge Rehab Centre here in Queensland. They had an office, but no rehab centre. So we started. We had no idea what, how to go about it or what to do. It took us nine years. I got a group of Christian businessmen together in Toowoomba. We used to have a monthly meeting as I put forward the ideas and they would come back with ideas. And you wouldn't want to know, but the magistrates in Toowoomba through a magistrate by the name of Windmill. Some of you may remember that name. His daughter is now involved in the centre as a, as a worker. He took on the, 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 the um, role of telling the magistrates, all the magistrates in Toowoomba, what we were doing. For two years in a row, Marjorie and I were invited to be the 
um, guest speakers at their conference. That opened some incredible doors to getting the rehab centre established. Marjorie personally visited every business house in Toowoomba over that period of time. Every business house. We had two phone lines into the house because back then you had to have a, a copper wire into the house, so we had to get a second one because of the phone calls we were getting. One Anzac day during that period, between 1990 and 2000, we had a phone call from a lady in Kununurra in Western Australia. She was crying. She was in agony over her son. Somebody, we don't know who, put her onto us, gave her our phone number. That same Anzac day, we also had a call from a lady in Adelaide. We were absolutely amazed at what was happening. We, Marjorie and I, the, the, the group associated with Alcoholics Anonymous called Naranon, Parents of Drug Addicts, used to have a meeting. So we went along. We went there regularly. Some of the things we found were incredible. The... Every time a parent went and complained to the police about drugs, that parent was targeted for any wrongdoing they did. A minor infringe, traffic infringement, we were followed. Anything that we did that wasn't quite right, we would be targeted. Not nice, but that's what happened back then in the 90s. One lady came to the meeting one night and she said, my neighbour has a son who's on drugs. And out in the backyard he had a whole lot of pot plants that his mother thought were marigolds. So he went away for a few weeks and he had to go off for some job. And he said to his mother, can you look after those marigolds of mine? So she did, but they, he didn't come back for a while. So she got the marigolds out and planted them all along on the footpath <laughs> outside the front fence. And this lady who came along to the Naranon meeting, she saw her and she said, uh, do you realise what you've planted there? Yeah, my son's marigolds. And this lady says, no, you've planted marijuana plants because when they're small, there's a, quite a similarity. That's the sort of thing that we came across all the time. It was a roller coaster road, I can tell you. The highs and the lows. It was <laughs> um, Marjorie, in her visiting the business houses, what she did, she decided to cultivate, if you like, Clive Berghofer. Now, Clive Berghofer is anything but a Christian and he has a terrible mess in his family but Marjorie visited him every month without fail for a long, long time. When it came to buying the property that Teen Challenge now has up in Bedford Street he gave us 
$1 million to buy it. And a lot of people don't know that. And then we said, well, do you want your name put on the gate? He said, under no circumstances will my name appear anywhere there. I'm giving this to you because I think it's a good cause. And that's the only reason we have the property we have there now. Because that man, and Marjorie still visits him regularly just to keep up the association. Oh yes, be still and know that I am God. Don't get yourself into a tiz when things go wrong. If you know the word of God, you'll know how to handle it. You know what I, I, I call worship? We often hear in a church service, oh, we're going to have worship now, we're going to have a sing. And it's banging and clashing and drums and all the noise that nearly lifts the roof. That's not worship. That's making a noise. Worship is, in my book, enjoying the presence of God. About two o'clock in the morning, I had a car stop outside our place and because we live out in the bush, when the car stops outside your place and then takes off again, you know that there's somebody being dropped off. I knew in myself that Mick had been dropped off. And a voice said to me, something said to me, go out, he needs help. Normally when he came home like that, I left him in the yard. He could go and get in the car or wherever, spend the rest of the night there. Because I refused to have a drug in the house. Okay, then... I let him in. He lay on a couch that we have under the window in the kitchen. I sat at the kitchen table. And I sat there for half an hour. In the training we did with Teen Challenge, which was very extensive, when you're in a situation like that, the first person to speak loses it. You've lost the initiative. It's gone. The other person has the initiative. He saw this image in the corner of the room and the image said to him, Mick, you know what you've got to do. He didn't do anything. Went and got himself a cup of coffee, I believe. Went back to bed. It appeared again. This time it was like a, a bone, a, a skinny person. And said, you know what you've got to do. He didn't do anything. The third time, it was a skeleton that appeared in the corner of the room. And the skeleton said to him, you know what you've got to do. So immediately, he got a friend to drive him out home. Stopped, got out of the car. I went out, I led him into the house. And for half an hour, nothing was said. And then eventually, he turned his head to me and he said, Dad, I need help. The most humiliating words any young man could ever say to his father, particularly after the way he treated us. We got him help. We got him to the Teen Challenge program in, <coughs> in New South Wales. He graduated, came home, and because he couldn't have come back to Toowoomba, when a person has been in a scene like that, in a place, they cannot go back there. The temptation, the everything that's there is too much. A family in 
Munjimup in Western Australia, right down in the southwestern uh, east, western corner. Took him in. He stayed there for a long time. And it was through that that he was able to come through and, and be rehabilitated. He's now an executive in one of the large mining companies. When the Lord takes control of a person's life, anything, and I mean anything, can happen. If they let God control. You know, with the drug scene, there are some real hard things. In Teen Challenge, we call it life-controlling problem, not a drug problem. Because in Teen Challenge, we've had people in there, okay, drugs are the main thing, but sex, gambling, the internet. Recently, there was a young man in there purely because of his addiction to the internet. All that kind of thing. Anything that's a, that grabs your attention can be a life-controlling problem. And it's only through the work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life that they can be freed from that. It's not a natural thing. It's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. Satan knows what he's doing. He's the father of lies. And all this stuff here that we read just a little while ago. So brothers and sisters, I want you to know that it doesn't matter where you're at, where somebody in your family is at, through the power of prayer and the Holy Spirit, they can be redeemed. And in, in closing, one final thing. Parents. Marjorie and I spent, oh, hundreds and hundreds of hours in people's homes by invitation when they found out they had a drug addict in the family. I have been in the homes of Jehovah's Witnesses and in the homes of Mormons here in Toowoomba witnessing about the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Holy Spirit can do in the lives of them and their children. And dads, as a final thing, existing dads, dads-to-be, hopeful dads. You know what the scriptures, if you know your scripture, you'll know this. The Bible has nothing really to say about the responsibility of mothers with their children. But dads, it's full of it. You and I have an awesome responsibility before God to guide and teach our children. My father, once a week at home, all through when I was, right from when I was seven, when my mother was teaching me scripture, he conducted a Bible study in the home. He used, back then there weren't too many books available that were suitable, but he used a book called In Understanding Be Men, written by Canon T.C. Hammond from the Moore Theological College, Anglican Moore Theological College in Sydney, by far the new Canon Hammond. 
And we used that book as our study guide. It was incredibly clear, incredibly full, incredibly pointing out the absolute critical nature of the Word of God in our lives. If there's anything more anybody would like to talk to me about, Marjorie, myself, we are very, very happy to spend any time that's necessary to come and sit down with you and talk with you in your homes or in a group, wherever, whatever. If you want further clarification on anything I've said today, We used to spend a lot of time over the years we were doing this through the 90s in meetings, PNC meetings, ladies' auxiliaries meetings in churches, in other organisations. Do you know what? The evangelical churches in Papua New Guinea didn't want to know us. They did not want to know the problems of drugs in the home. Almost every Catholic church in we were in. Uh, in Toowoomba, we have been there at their invitation to speak to them. Every Catholic school in Toowoomba, we've been there to the PNC and spoken to them. The Christian churches didn't want to know. There's something wrong. There's something wrong in our Christian lives. Let us ask the Lord to lead us and guide us and show us what he wants us to do. First and foremost, get back to your Bible and find out what's there. Amen. Yes. I'm going to read you the words of a, a hymn that have been very precious to me. Simple words. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, saviour, friend, and I know that thou art with me, wilt be with me to the end. Our loving Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it contains. We thank you that in it we find an answer to every possible situation we can find in our lives. And Lord, this morning as we come to partake of the bread and cup, we thank you for the broken body of Christ. We thank you for the shed blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf. He loved us enough to die for us, and we thank you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.